Last week, we started a story. And part of that story went like this. But then something happened. Now, exactly what happened and who all was involved is something we've been arguing about ever since it happened way, way back so very long ago. Some say it was great-grandma's fault. Others say, no, it was definitely great-grandpa's fault. Still others point their fingers to some snaky-like creature. Basically, we've been arguing over this for ages, and sometimes we get so mad arguing, we end up storming off from the family picnic and making snarky, nasty posts about certain family members on our Instabook pages. Not fun. But even though we might argue ex about the exact details of how it happened, it's pretty obvious what happened as a result. First, love was brokenhearted. Love knew when love created us that it was going to be risky. You see, for something to really carry the image of love, it has to be free to create and choose. And man, when choice, I mean real choice is involved, there is always the danger of choosing wrongly. Now, that's where we stopped last week and we started talking more in, in more concrete terms about the consequences of these choices. And I, really to get the full understanding of this message, you're gonna to have to go back and listen to the last message. We talked about how sin is a denial of dependence on God and interdependence among neighbors, a refusal to be a people of God to properly bear God's image, and a counter-insistent that the individual ego be treated as something godlike. Eugene Peterson wrote that. I didn't. But what it resulted in, we see clearly, is that our rebellion is a failure to abide in the deep love of God and in loving relationships with ourselves, with others, and with all of creation. This is indeed bad news as it results in two tragic postures. These postures result in the gross violation of God's standards, brokenness, disordered affections, and dead hearts. These two postures are rooted in rebellion and denial and dependence on God and insistence on idolatry. Because what else is idolatry other than living, other than loving ourselves and other things in a way that only God deserves? These two postures, abdication and usurpation, or put another way, we reject the responsibility of the things God gave us responsibility for, and we, and we grasp the responsibility for things that only belong to God. We continually distort not only our own image, but the image of God, and are constantly living with the fruits of that rebellion. It gets a little bit worse, you see, because no matter how hard we try, it isn't going to get better. No matter how much education, science, politics, religion we get, we can't fix it. So where do we stay? Well, it's all bad news. Unless, unless, unless we really believe that there is nothing that cannot be restored, nothing dead that cannot be resurrected, Nothing stolen that cannot be replaced. Nothing tainted that cannot be made clean. But how do we say this? I mean, how do we make such an audacious promise? Well, let's, let's tell a little bit more of the story we say. So 
back to the story. From that first second of brokenness, rebellion, and rejection, love leaned in. See, love never left. Love never gave up and packed up and moved on. No, love kept loving because that's what love does. Now, that's not to say that we as the image bearers have always understood that. In fact, most of the time, we couldn't see it, understand it, feel it. We misinterpreted love's outreached hand as a vengeful fist. We misinterpreted love's soothing song of restoration as thundering pronouncements of judgment. Well, love knew this. Love knew that hurting people have trouble thinking straight, that broken people feel shame in their brokenness, and that leads them to cover it up with all kinds of dangerous illusions and snake oil remedies. Love knows that sick people make toxic decisions out of pain, but love never gave up because love never gives up. So one day, the perfect day, the day that love had long imagined and worked to create, love did something that shook the very fabric of the cosmos. Where way back, once upon a time, love said to love while love was listening, let us do something special, really special. Let us create beings in our image, living, breathing, visible and carrying in them the very image of who we are. Well, that's what love said once upon a time, but this time, this is what love said. On this day, love said, let us become like them, made of dust and blood, culture and time. Let us, the very thing, become like the thing we made, the bearers of the image instead of the image maker itself. Let us, the creator, become the created and demonstrate once and for all what love looks like, acts like, sounds like, smells like, tastes like. And let us show them how to properly live as image bearers. Now, since love can really never stop being love, love was still love, even though love was also the thing that love made. Love was now both. And here's where the mystery just gets so mind-blowing that it's impossible to comprehend. I think that might be why love went to such extremes to be like us. So even though we can never truly understand love as love is, we can know what love looks like and what love does. And that, friends, changes everything. That is really good news. Now, we don't have time to go into all the things that love did when love was both the maker and the made, the creator and the created, the, the image and the image bearer. That story takes a lifetime to tell. And there's no better way to spend your life than learning that story and acting in it. So I'll stop the story here and outline some of the high points. Now, 
There's a man named Paul, and he wrote a letter to the Romans. And this letter has been used a variety of ways, to put it kindly, throughout history. So it's always a dangerous thing to take a snippet of this letter, as snippets have been used, as snippets will be used in the past. But there is one particular snippet that encapsulates so much of the story that I think it gives us an anchor to hold on to. So in this particular letter, Paul writes this in the 8th chapter, starting in the 6th verse. Sorry, the 5th chapter, starting in the 5th, 6th verse. Paul wrote to the Romans, the church at Rome, For while we were still helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person, perhaps someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more then, because we have now been declared righteous by his blood, we will be saved through him from God's wrath. For while we were enemies, we were reconciled through the death of his son, how much more, since we have been reconciled, will we be saved by his life? Not only this, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus, through whom we have now received this reconciliation. Reconciliation, the good news, this promise that everything that we've broken will be fixed, everything that we have pushed away, we will now be drawn near. Everything that we've rejected will pull us back. What is this reconciliation? Well, first of all, we have to understand the direction of it. Larry Shelton says in his book, Cross and Covenant, reconciliation is a work which proceeds from God and is directed towards man and aims not to appease God, but to cleanse man from sin and restore him to right relationship with God. Now, I don't know about you, but I grew up with an image of God as very, let us say, demanding. And the idea that God had a perfect law and that I was incapable of keeping this law. But I was still expected and held accountable for keeping the law, even though I was incapable of doing it. That no matter how hard I tried, there would always be a spot that I missed. And because I missed a spot, I earned the anger of God. And this anger would have sent me to hell if it had not been somehow that the anger was turned on God's son and that that made God now overlook my mistakes. Now, there's, listen, there's reason why this developed. However, you can see quickly how that creates a very distorted view when left in isolation by itself. And I was in Dr. Shelton's class when he said these words. He said, Jesus did not die to change God's attitude towards us, but our attitude towards God. At that moment, the good news started to become really good. When I started to see that God has always been working towards reconciliation, always pursuing, always leaning in, never wanting to punish, but always wanting to cover over that, always on the path of reconciliation. Even while I was ignorant, hurt, broken, rebellious, sinful, that's good news. 
what about this wrath, though? What about the wrath that's talked? Well, listen, we can understand wrath as being outside of this place of reconciliation. That wrath is the inevitable consequence of rejecting the invitation of God to reconciliation. It's not so much that God inflicts it on us as that we fail to take the invitation to escape the natural consequences of our sin and brokenness. For what? Can there be any worse experience than standing outside of rejecting the invitation to reconciliation? We may not fully understand how wrath works, but we fully understand how to escape it. And that is by accepting this invitation of reconciliation and understanding that this is for everyone, no matter what experiences you have had. You know, I talk about this idea of an angry God that we need to be saved from the wrath of God, but that is a very narrow experience of humanity. There's a large portion of humans that have walked this who have looked to God to be the one who sets them free from slavery, maybe human bondage. There's been a large portion that looked to set them free from unjust poverty, from being held down by other human beings in their toxicity. There are other people who struggle with, with personal things that we'll never, some of us may never encounter. And you have to see that this good news, this promise of restoration, reconciliation of God reaching out, looks very different to very different people. We, we couch it in certain terms, but that's only due to our experience. Reconciliation takes place across the whole spectrum of human experience with this. If it's not good news for everybody, it's really not good news at all. And it is good news for everyone. Gabe, in our teaching meeting, mentioned this. He said, that's why we so desperately need diversity within our churches. We need these various expressions and understandings of reconciliation, of what it means to be set free, what it means to be restored, what it means to be healed. Because my healing, my restoration is going to look very different from someone from a different background, race or class or socioeconomic group. We need those perspectives in the church. This is why we're devoting ourselves to the Erebon study in this season and seeking to position ourselves tangibly in a place where our, where Grace Church will reflect more of those diverse cultures so that we can understand the gospel, so that the good news will become good news to a greater depth than it's ever been before. You see, the good news is that the kingdom of God is here. This is how Jesus proclaimed it. He said, the kingdom of God is here. Repent and believe. This repentance is key. When Jesus demands repentance, Eberhard Arnold said it this way. He said, when Jesus demands repentance, it is not that he wants to take something from us or to rob us or to make us poor. No, he rejoices in offering it to us as a gift which he gives in his great love for our souls. He wants us to repent in order to enrich us, to give us something to fill our souls with joy and to make us blessed. He, has the, he is the physician who has come not for the healthy, but for the sick. He is the Savior who has come not to call the just, but the sinners to repentance. 
God has always been like that. Brian Zahn said, God is like Jesus. God has always been like Jesus. There has never been God that was not like Jesus. We didn't always know this, but we know it now. And that is truly good news. Dallas Willard went on to, he says, the early message was, the early message of the good news was, accordingly, not experience is something its hearers had to, to believe or do because otherwise something bad, something with no essential connection with the real life would happen to them. The people initially impacted by the gospel generally concluded that they would be fools to disregard it. That was the basis of their conversion. And it needs to be the basis of ours, that we would be fools to reject this good news. It's not another to-do list. It's not another works thing we have to work for. We are set free. We are healed. We are reconciled. Friends, it's not our sin that separates. It's our self-righteousness. And James Bryant Smith said, Our self-righteousness does not turn God from us, but us from God. It is not my sin that moves me away from God. It is my refusal of grace, both for myself and for others. I agree. In my own experience and in my experience as a missionary, a pastor, a spiritual director, I'm ever more convinced that the single hardest thing for a human being to do is to let oneself be loved by God. And believe that same love is given to every other person. Well, listen, you may believe that this morning or you may not. This may challenge you or it may thrill you. But it is true. Love has never left us. Love has been leaning in and pursuing us since the day we were created. And nothing can separate us from that love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. This is the good news. This is the news that transforms peoples and communities and countries and the cosmos. This is the good news. Let's rejoice and live into it. Thank you.